Welcome to the LarryInFishers.com podcast. I'm Larry Lanham. Lindsay Erdotti covered the northern suburbs for the Indianapolis Business Journal, then switched to covering the Indiana State House and politics. I recorded several podcasts with Lindsay when she had the North of 96th Beat. But there's so much politics to discuss, I decided to take a trip to downtown Indy and the IBJ's new digs right on Monument Circle and uh, get together and talk with Lindsay again, this time during the morning of Friday, August 9th. I'm at the Indianapolis Business Journal, right off Monument Circle in the IPL, Indianapolis Power and Light Building. I have just received, I will call it the nickel tour. It's more like a several hundred dollar tour of the new facilities here. And Lindsay Ardotti is here with me. Lindsay, thank you so much for once again appearing on one of my podcasts. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for coming and seeing our new office. Yeah, you know, John Wexler, well, I had him on a podcast a while back. And that was when you were just changing beats. He goes, I hope you and Lindsay still do your podcast. I love listening to you. So we at least have one fan. Well, that's good. Hi, John. <laughs> I'm sure John's <laughs> listening here. Uh, but yeah, you're, you're faci- I love the facility. And what I like most about your new office, I saw the old office, which is fine. It was very traditional. Uh, but this one is very modern, very open concept, uh, no traditional ceilings, except in this conference room where the, so the acoustics are good. But um just tell me, how long have you been in this office now? We moved in March, and uh, it's been great. We love it. Um, so many upgrades in terms of technology and equipment and just all-around aesthetics are so much nicer. Yeah, and I think you have to think of technology and you put together today's newsroom. And the, the other one was really for the print age. Yes. Uh, this one is set up for the tech, technological age. So I, uh, I'm very impressed. I'm glad you have new digs here. Uh, there was always some question. I think I even asked you about it on a podcast. Where are you going? You were kind of circumspect because you couldn't say any at that time. Yes. I think you had more than one uh, place, but I think you landed very well. Yeah. Now, you also covered the State House. We'll get into all that. But uh, I asked you this before, so t- tell the listeners, how often are you at this office and you have a State House uh, workplace in the State House? Well, just really yep. two or three blocks from there. So how do you split your time? During the legislative session, I was at the state house probably every day. Uh, maybe not so much on Fridays because there wasn't as much going on. But now that we're not in the session, uh, I've mostly been at this office. There just isn't a whole lot going on at the state house that keeps me there. And uh, for those who aren't aware, the state house offices are called shacks, and they're in the basement of the state house. So you can imagine they're not nearly as nice as this beautiful new office Mm, so it's a little bit more tempting to be (laughs) here in the nice pretty office (laughs) i think tell me i think we talked about this once before but as i recall the stories and you can tell me if i'm right that shack area is in the basement and in the early days of the state of indiana that was used to house the horses because that's how people got around that's what I always believed, but then I saw this year that that might not be true. It's so I don't, true. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Well, then we'll uh, let that legend lie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they had to put the horses somewhere in those yep. days. Who knows if it was there? Who, who knows if it was there or not? Well, you've just finished your full legislative session, and and the state uh, lawmakers uh, do activities. They they have a two year budget they passed. Mm-hmm. What they do in, here in Indianapolis affects the whole state, affects fishers, everybody. So I'm just curious about your reflections on your first 
full session, especially being the long budget session. What did you see? What surprised you? What didn't surprise you? Just I'd like some observations. I feel like there was a lot of big topics that we at IBJ really cared about. Um, so were there a lot of things that I was just kind of trying to keep track of throughout this session? Um, you know, just this morning, I was kind of refreshing myself about what had happened and went back and looked at my legislative wrap up and was surprised by all the topics <laughs> that were in there. Um, you know, for us, a couple of the big things were the, uh, the deal with to keep the Indiana Pacers in town for another 25 years and everything that was connected to the um, capital improvement board and giving them more funding so they could keep the pacers here. What also got slipped into that bill uh, had to deal with Indy 11 and potentially helping fund a permanent stadium for the soccer team. Um, Hate crimes was a big issue early on which was interesting because then it was kind of like we dealt with it and then we moved on in the second half of the session. It almost seemed like a non issue. You know, we, we dealt with that and moved on to other things like the budget, which was a big deal. Um, the, the interesting thing about the budget is I feel like there's some, you know, it's always kind of underlying in a lot of things as you go through the session, because so many things are tied to money and the budget. But specifically talking about the budget, I feel like you really don't get down to it until the end of the session because that's when your final revenue forecasts are out and you finally kind of have everything figured out. And so it was really towards the end where we were like, okay, well, is this in the budget? Is this not in the budget? What's changed? And so it's those last few days of session are kind of hectic in terms of tracking everything and it's a lot of asking lawmakers, okay, well, what happened to this and what about this and what, you know, and that's not you know, asking them once a day, it's asking them several times a day because something happened in the morning could change by the afternoon. That was certainly the case. One of the things we paid attention to was the uh, potential tax on vaping products. And that ended up not uh, going through with anything on the very last day, but it was a toss up until the very end. Um, so I think, you know, one of the things I learned is that you just, you have to ask a lot of questions and you have to not be afraid to speak up <laughs> and, and ask about things you don't know and, and keep track of uh, a lot of different bills. I had an Excel sheet that I tracked everything on. So That's a great way to do it. Now, I remember, and I wasn't really around the State House, but knew a lot of reporters at the State House in the pre-computer days. I remember, oh gosh, it must have been the early 80s. Uh, the state put in one computer terminal for the media to use so you could track the bills, and it is, wasn't always totally up to date. Uh, you use technology, but don't you have to use shoe leather? you got to walk around, talk to people to really know what's going on? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, I would, because the website's not always updated with things, the, the bills online aren't always updated with certain things, um, you know, so there might be amendments that are ready, but they're not on the website yet. So it's a lot of, you know, running upstairs, you know, trying to find senators, trying to find representatives and asking them, you know, are you going to file this amendment? What does this amendment look like? And, you know, hoping to catch them off the floor and, and chat with them about it. Yeah, some are more uh, easy to speak with than others in terms of their availability. <laughs> some say, I, I'll, I'll be back in a minute and then you never see them again. Others are anxious to talk to you. It kind of does it still vary that way with some of the senators, representatives, particularly the leaders? Yeah, I, w I would say it varies a little bit it, with people and also with topics. Depends on what you're trying to ask them about <laughs> sometimes. But um, for the most part, I feel like, you know, everyone I tried to talk to is pretty forthcoming, even though sometimes, you know, they had to say, well, I don't know yet. Or, you know, ask me tomorrow or ask me next week or ask me in an hour. So yeah, that, that sounds like the, the state legislature I know and love. Yeah. Uh, 
I've got one logistical question, and this, this may sound strange, but it appears to me, and tell me if I'm wrong, most of the legislative hearings are held in fairly small rooms. Is that fair? To, I mean, there are some exceptions. There are some big auditoriums that they know there's going to be a big crowd, but most of them are not held in, in large places. And I know that sometimes there are seats reserved, but I don't think they reserve seats for the media. Yeah, they do. A lot of the committee hearings are in small committee rooms. There is seating. Um, there's not reserved seating for media. So, you know, with some of the bigger hearings uh, that we would really care about, like the gambling stuff, for example, I would make sure I got to the committee room by the time it would open or like hours in advance and at least put a notebook down. And then that way that would save my seat. <laughs> um, or I would just, you know, take my laptop up there and, and start working up there pretty early on. Um, because, yeah, there is not reserve seating. I've heard of a lot of reporters sitting on the floor or standing or just because there's no place to, to sit. And, you know, that's yeah. it's uh, it's just the way it is. But uh, Or watching are, it online wa- in the basement. Always, <laughs> you can always watch it online, but it's not quite the same. And I, I talk to people about that. You know, we have more of our meetings uh, in Fishers that are now online. The town, I'm um, town council, city council. Mm-hmm. The school board recently uh, are uh, showing those, but they don't show the work sessions where a lot of the work really gets done. So, and they also uh, you can't go out and talk to somebody and ask them a question if it's or it's not easy to do that. So I always prefer to be there. I guess I'm old fashioned in that sense, and I think you try to do that when you can. Oh, absolutely! I definitely preferred to be in the room just because then if like someone was giving public testimony or something and you needed to ask them a follow-up question or get, you know, name clarification or something like that, it's easy to just, you know, walk out and grab them really quick. Uh, You mentioned the soccer team and yes, there was some action on that, but here's the thing. And I I think I'm right. And tell me if I'm behind on this, isn't it true that there's still no site designated for the soccer stadium? That is correct. So we have (laughs) a plan ahead for a soccer stadium I think, uh, as I recall, the owner of the soccer team was pleased with the legislative action. And when asked where it's going to be, I think he said, well, it could be one of several places. And is that still the answer we're getting? Yes, that okay. is still the answer we're getting. We still don't know where it'll go. They still have to, you know, they have to select a site. And then there's still a couple other steps they have to go through before they'd ever really be able to start pulling on tax dollars for it. So they... They got further than they'd ever gotten before mm-hmm. in this session, absolutely. But it, there's still a little ways to go before anything is really happening. One person who's always been in favor of that uh, Indy 11 was is Todd Houston, our local representative in Fishers. And uh, I want to ask you about him because Tim Brown had a terrible accident, motorcycle accident. Mm-hmm. He's still recovering, as I understand. He was here as much as he could be. But my understanding is he was so limited, Todd Houston really did a lot of the work at Ways and Means chairing that very key committee in the House. So I'm curious, uh, as an observer, reporter, um, any, any comments or observations on, on, uh, on how Todd Houston managed that, that big, uh, that's a budget year, right. uh, the big workload he had there at Ways and Means. Right. So I wasn't around for the previous budget session, so I hadn't worked with Representative Brown really as much to know, but it seemed like you know, from talking to other people and, and my observations that Representative Houston really stepped up and, and took on a lot more responsibility in this session than he had in previous ones. Um, but I think, you know, the leadership, you know, views him as smart and capable of doing all of those things. And I think they're pleased with how everything went this session with the budget and with his work on Ways and Means, because 
uh, aside from the budget, I mean, Representative Houston also had to take on the CIB bill that went through Ways and Means. Um, he also had to deal with the gambling legislation that went through Ways and Means. So he had a lot of big pieces of legislation that he was juggling. And I haven't heard any negative comments about how he dealt with it. So I I think he he probably did pretty well. Yeah, I mean, he's been very nice to me. Of course, I am reporter in his hometown, but uh, anytime I had a question, he was back pretty quickly. Yeah, he uh, he always answered my questions, returned my calls, so no complaints there. And that, uh, I don't know that you covered it this that much, but there's this uh, county option income tax battle between Scott Fadness and Jim Brainerd because of the distribution formula of COET. Scott Fadness feels that it's not fair to Fishers. He said he could fund the fire department and part of the police department with the amount of money he's being shorted. And, of course, Brainerd kind of likes it the way it is. Scott thought he had a deal, and nothing ended up happening. So uh, as, as you probably well know, and I've heard this more than one lobbyist, if you're working on an issue, it's much easier to get the legislature not to do something than to get them to do something. And that's true of almost any legislative body. Yeah, I I would agree with that. It's you never know what's going to happen at the state house. I I try not to make predictions sometimes with bills and certain things because I'm like you know it's things. I, mean, I have seen entire bills written in conference committee, mm-hmm. and then I think that's how we got gambling originally. If I remember, this goes back a ways, but uh, I don't think it passed either house. Somebody slipped it into the conference committee, and we got gambling all of a sudden. I mean, that was the original gambling bill. So uh, things happen pretty quickly. Like you said, trying to keep track of it is is, is a challenge for, for any reporter or even yeah. if you are somebody trying to advocate for, for one thing or the other. Well, and this year with the, the hate crimes legislation and the House side of things, that just got slipped into another bill. So there was never mm-hmm. another committee hearing or anything like that. And so I think, you know, there was some criticism over using that process instead of, you know, hearing the bill in committee and going through the normal steps. But before I leave that, I want to ask you this, because it depends on who you ask as to whether or not Indiana is still one of those four or five states without a hate crimes bill. We took steps forward, but there are a lot of people who say didn't go far enough. You heard a lot of uh, debate and discussion about that. Uh, Where is Indiana, do you think? I mean, is it it a matter of interpretation? Just kind of give me your best uh, slant on that. I think it's a matter of interpretation, and it's a matter of who you ask. Because I think a lot of the Republicans, I think Governor Holcomb would say, absolutely, we have a hate crimes law. We're happy with it, you know. But I think Democrats and some advocacy groups would say, no, like in, in 2019, you didn't go far enough. You didn't because it references a list. It doesn't have a list itself. People are upset because that list they reference they think is leaving some traits out. Um, so it, it's really a matter of who you ask. I've got a feeling this issue will be up again sometime ne- next session or some session in the future, don't you think? I wouldn't be surprised okay. if it came back up. You talked about gambling and wow, this has caused quite a buzz. Um, the new laws being implemented as we speak. I remember reading your story about a gambling commission meeting, and I think the casinos would absolutely love to have sports gambling by the NFL season. I don't think that's going to happen, but you can talk about that more. Uh, I think the first phase, well, tell me if I'm wrong, is people will be able to wager on sporting events at the casinos, and then the the uh, the real online and the phones, and the phones are the big money maker here, will come sometime next year. So tell me if I, that's the last thing I read, tell me if I'm on target there. Yeah, so technically it all becomes legal September 1st, mm-hmm. but 
that doesn't mean you will be able to go bet at a sporting <laughs> event on September 1st because there's just a lot of things that have to be done to kind of set up this whole system and to license the casinos. And then the casinos are probably contracting with someone else to facilitate it all. And so there's just there's kind of all of these moving pieces that are critical to making sure that it's run well and responsibly. And I don't think the state wants to jump into it and not have it run well and responsibly. So I know there's a gaming commission meeting uh, towards the end of this month, and I'm expecting we'll have more concrete answers Mm -hmm. then in terms of what's going to happen for now. Um, Most of the casinos all have temporary licenses, meaning they would be able to you'd be able to go in and, and bet on a sporting event. Um, and that and would then, include the Racinos and Shelbyville and Anderson? I believe so. Okay. Okay. Um, and I know there's some off-track betting facilities okay. that um, have gotten the temporary license as well. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, it sounds like from the casino perspective too, they're not sure they'll be able to roll out the mobile right away. Mm-hmm. Uh, they want to as soon as possible. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> but again, it's a matter of all those logistics coming together. You know, I wish in some ways that I, you know, anybody who has experience in Nevada running a sports book is very much in demand right now because sports gambling is just, you know, with the Supreme Court decision, uh, states all over. Illinois is definitely into it. I don't know if Ohio will, but uh, Indiana was interested right away. Yeah, there's a lot of moving piece. I feel like all the time I see a different map of the United States and then, you know, colors the states in different ways to show where they're at on sports betting. And it's constantly changing in terms of considering it, passed a law, but not operating yet, operating now. You know, I think Indiana's a little bit ahead of its neighbors, mm-hmm. but our neighbors are not far behind us. <laughs> I was going to say, it's all. there's too much money. You know? yeah. Although when I talked to Todd Houston about this before the session, he said, well, we have to make a decision of whether to do it, which was yes in the end, because I don't mm. think we should look at this as a huge cash cow. There's money there, but it's not a gigantic amount of money. Is that what you've seen? Absolutely. I mean, yeah. when you think about the fact that the state has a $34 billion budget, I mean, this is not going to be a huge amount of revenue for the state. Um, but that gambling bill also had several other big pieces to it. And so there was just a, a lot going on with it. The interesting thing is Representative Houston voted against it in the end. That is true. That is true. Um, let's go to politics. That's also <laughs> your beat. I think a lot of people were a little bit shocked when Susan Brooks decided not to run for re-election in the 5th Congressional District for the U.S. Congress. I think most political observers thought if she wanted to run again, she probably could win that. She's been fairly, she's a fairly moderate Republican. Uh, I know Joe Donnelly ran very well in that district, and the Democrats are talking that up a lot, thinking it may be uh, in play. It's a little early to say at this point. I think a lot of national political uh, developments could change that. But I did talk to Leah McGrath, our uh, deputy mayor, one of our deputy mayors in, in Fishers, I had her on a podcast recently and asked her that, and and I got a definite maybe. You know, she's I, I clearly uh, she's thinking about it, but has made no. So she didn't say yes, and she didn't say no, which is is fine. It's kind of what I would have expected, unless she had ruled it out, and she's not ruling it out at this point. But there are plenty of other people who are testing the waters. You know, who can get the supporters, the money the campaign people to make a camp because you're going to be whoever wins. The Republican primary is in for two tough elections, the primary election 
And, you know, the, the general election is going to be a little more of a, a fight than I think people would have expected. On the other hand, you've got Democrats who will also have uh, a contested primary as mm-hmm. things are based on people who have announced. Mm-hmm. Uh, Christine Hale seems to be the favorite, but Dee Thornton has run there before, so she's already got some experience with those people. I'm curious, with all that as background, I mean, uh, first of all, were you surprised that Susan Brooks made this decision, or was it something you thought was a possibility? I was a little surprised by it, yeah, because I think, like you said, um, people thought she could run again and, and win. It, it may have been her toughest race yet, you know, because, again, she made that announcement before Christina Hale announced that she was running, so we didn't know who she'd potentially be running against. So depending on who her opponent was, it could have been a, a tougher race than normal. But I think most people thought she still could have won pretty easily, though. And I, I just wonder, maybe she, and I'm just conjecturing, you can respond if you want. Uh, she was probably looking at two scenarios. Number one, she's in the minority again. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're in the minority in a house, it's a pretty bad place to be. Ask any member of Congress, would you rather be in the majority or the minority be in that place like the House, where the majority really does, have, it's the Senate there, the, the minority has some rights, but boy, in the, the House, it's a little different thing. Uh, um, you'd rather be in the majority. And he's, although she's voted with President Trump a lot, she's not always been on his side on some major issues. So if he were to win re-election, whether you're in the minority or majority, either way, she was going to have to figure out how she was going to vote on these uh, the, the Trump issues that come before her mm-hmm. as a fairly moderate Republican. So I, I think that she looked, and this is just my conjecture, she looked at what it would be like to be in another term and maybe thought maybe it's time to do something else. I, that's certainly possible. And we've seen other House Republicans since her announcement say that they're retiring or they're not running for reelection. And I think, you know, we kind of keep like seeing this snowball almost of House Republicans saying, nope, I'm out. And so the more and more that do that, the more kind of interesting it becomes and the more you can think about, well, what are they really thinking here? You know, is it kind of like what you said that they don't want to be in the minority and they kind of see that as their future, at least for the next two years? I've been hearing a lot from the Democratic officials and and uh, the people in the Democratic Party, particularly in Hamilton counties, uh, kind of touting the fact that Joe Donnelly won that that congressional district as far as number of votes counted within the district. Of course, Joe Donnelly had a pretty good election organization. He was well-funded. And on top of that, I saw Joe Donnelly all the time. He was in Fishers quite often, especially for a Democratic member of the Senate. And I think that's true throughout that district. He came and spent a lot of time there. Do you think that the fact that Donnelly ran well last year is a, a hopeful sign for Democrats, or or should they kind of be careful what those results really mean? I think it's a little bit of both. Okay. <laughs> I think I think Democrats see a lot of potential in Hamilton County specifically. I think they see the demographics shifting a little bit. They see younger people moving in, and they think you know they can really get some of those votes. They think they see suburban moms not happy with President Trump, and they think they can take those votes. And and then I think they're looking at Donnelly's results and saying, well, you know, look how well that did. And, you know, they think it's just going to get better. Um, Whether or not that ends up being the case in 2020, you know, that remains to be seen. Um, You know, I think they're pretty happy about Christina Hale being the candidate up there. 
And then I think it's just going to be a matter of who comes out of the Republican primary, which could be really interesting to see because, you know, Republican primaries, you tend to go the, the further to the right candidate tends to make it through because it's a primary. And I think Democrats would love to see that happen because then they think they have a better chance because versus if a more moderate Republican made it out of the primary. I hate to say I told you so, not you particularly, but many people I talked to in Fishers uh, when we had the Senate primary uh, this last time, this last year, it was Braun and it was uh, Messer and it was, what was the third one? Rokita. Rokita, thank you. How could I forget? <laughs> so those three were running and everybody was saying, who's it going to be, Rokita or Messer? And I said, I think Rokita and Messer just might attack each other down. I think Braun may win. And people said, no. Well, guess what we have? Senator Braun right now. Oh, yeah. Uh, so I, I'm looking at this 5th District uh, primary election. Uh, something like that could happen. Of course, we don't know the names yet. You know, nobody files for office until early next year anyway. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, anyway, I, I, I just, any final thoughts on the 5th District? I, it's, I find this a very fast, that was originally carved out as a very Republican district. Mm-hmm. And things can really change in 10 years. We're nearing the end of that census cycle. And uh, so I, it's interesting to see that we have a different, uh, where I live, we have a much different district than we had before. Right. I, I mean, but the interesting thing is that before we get to 2022 in that district, the lines will have changed. So, you know, how those lines shift, does it become even more of a conservative district or does it become, you know, a, a little bit more of a purple district, if you will? I depends on who's redrawing the lines, probably. <laughs> and will Indiana keep all of our members of the House. I can remember mm-hmm. uh, several cycle, few cycles ago, Congressman I knew who I liked very much uh, ended up being redistricted out of redistricted out of his seat. Uh, he tried to run in the primary, but the other uh, candidate had a much larger uh, area and better uh, name recognition there. Mm-hmm. So sometimes you just get redistricted out, and it's mm-hmm. nothing you've done. It's just the way things go. A few more things I want to talk about politically. Westfield, always mm-hmm. an interesting place. There is now a libertarian running for mayor in Westfield. Uh, we have we just had an announcement in recent days, but as we before we record this, that there is an independent who is running for city council. Who, if I read uh, and I'm, I'm not familiar with it, but, but reading some of the news accounts, appears to be have ties to uh, to a mayor Kirk. So with all that going on. Um, do you think uh, we're going to have a, a campaign in the general election with uh, a, a libertarian and I think one independent running in a very Republican city? I think it's possible. Um, you know, we were together on a primary night That's and right. we were both, I think, a little surprised by the Westfield City Council results yes. <laughs> with some incumbents being uh, losing their races. Um, so I think there's certainly going to be uh, an interesting push, I think, because I think there are certainly, as we saw in the primary, I think there are certainly people in Westfield who are not happy with the way Mayor Cook is doing things. But I think there are a lot of people who are happy with mm-hmm. the way Mayor Cook is doing things. And so, you know, I think they, people on both sides saw the results of the primary and thought, okay, well, what are we going to do now? And they're kind of looking to the general. And I think it's, interesting that um it's not democrats running in the general election that's, right. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's exactly right um, but that just 
could be a product of Hamilton County. Um, well, we do have several Democrats running for council at Fishers. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'll see how they ran some candidates four years ago. They didn't do very well. They say they've learned from that. We'll find out. But in, in Westfield, uh, I think it's going to be the, the Libertarian and the Independent that we'll be watching yeah. on uh, election night. And, and running as a Libertarian or an Independent could probably help you better than running as a Democrat in that area. In that area, it could. It could so. yeah, we'll see. Uh, we have no U.S. Senate race next year, but we have the governor up for re-election. Uh, Eric Holcomb, when I see the the polling, there's not a lot of polling data out there that's public, but most of it seems to say that Eric Holcomb, everybody thinks he's okay, but they don't know a lot about him. He hasn't really been kind of upfront like a Mitch Daniels might have been on a lot of major issues, or you know Mike Pence for that matter. Uh, so with that in mind, do you think the Democrats have any chance of mounting a credible campaign against Eric Holcomb? I'm reading there are not a lot of uh, candidates who are are testing the waters there. I think it'll be interesting to see what happens in the Democratic primary, assuming there is a primary, and seeing who comes out of it. Right now, we only know of one Democrat that's officially running. It's Woody Myers. And we've heard some other names. Um, You know, Carly Maser and Eddie Melton are the two that are thrown around the most. Whether or not either of them run, I don't know. I think we'll find out pretty soon, mm-hmm. honestly. Um, from what I have had heard, that um, Carly Maser was probably going to make her decision sometime in August. So we should know um, at least about her pretty soon. But the thing with Holcomb that you didn't have or you didn't really see with, with Pence. Pence made a lot of controversial statements mm-hmm. that Democrats attacked him on, and there are a lot of things that. Pence did that upset some people. Holcomb hasn't really done that. Holcomb, and and I think that's why you see in the polling that people are just kind of middle of the road with him. You know, there's not a lot of, no, I really don't like him. And, you know, I think there is a certain amount of, yes, I really do like him, but that's coming from Republicans, certainly. Um, So I, I feel like it'll be a little bit tougher for Democrats because there's not an easy target to go after him on if that makes sense you know with with pence it was easy you know go after him for rifra because Mm -hmm. that was you Mm -hmm. know the big controversy um so it'll it'll be interesting to see who comes out of the democratic primary and then how that kind of shapes up but i think holcomb's in a pretty strong position to win re-election it just it's very uncommon for an incumbent governor in indiana to i don't think i don't know if it's since since these well for many years i was young we governors only had one term for many Mm -hmm. years once we've gone to two terms no governor's ever been denied a second term so that would be but do you think eric holcomb will have any uh any any uh challenges from the right in the primary i don't think so okay one last thing running out of time you also cover philanthropy I teach a tax practitioner institute. I'm in my fifth year of doing that where I travel the state for Indiana University and, and partner and I spend, do a two-day seminar. And we talked a lot last year with the tax professionals about the changes in charitable contributions. I think only about 12% of people can itemize deductions now compared to what we had before. And that means fewer people will get a tax benefit for a charitable contribution. There was always a se- certain segment, but that segment has grown now with the law that was implemented last year. Mm-hmm. What are you hearing from people in philanthropy? Has that had an impact on them? Or just what are they saying to you about this? I feel like it's still one of those things that we're seeing play out a little bit. Um, Because I think 
there hasn't been a catastrophic drop in donations, that's for sure. Um, and it's hard to tell a little bit, you know, in terms of, okay, if your donations go down a little bit, was that because of the tax law or was that because of something else? You know, so you have to kind of keep that in mind as well. Um, you know, one of the things I was reading about the other day that I think will be interesting to see if happens was about um, something that might work its way through Congress to allow companies to basically offer tax-free like donation funds. So like, you know, instead of going through United Way or something, for example, your employer would offer this and you'd put money in there and then it would be donated. And so I'm not sure if that's going to get a whole lot of traction or not, but I'm seeing at least in the philanthropy world that people are starting to toss that idea around. I'm seeing more events Mm-hmm. from the, some of the local nonprofits and fishers. For example, the local youth sports uh, nonprofit instituted a celebrity kickball tournament. <laughs> They'd never had that before, and I think that was a response to this. They thought that we're going to lose some. What I have found in, in, in just reading generally, like people, for instance, at the IU School of Philanthropy, nationally known, said, well, we, we think that people will still give. It may not be as much, so there may be some marginal issues and that's exactly what i'm hearing you say as well so yeah and because i think that a lot of your you know smaller level donations at least it's unknown how many of those people were itemizing their taxes to begin with um so i think that kind of has played into it a little bit as well it's just i i think the hard thing is is to figure out what the impact is because there are so many kind of, well, what if it was this? What if it was that kind of scenarios to really draw a hard line conclusion to it? Um, and like I said, I think it's still a little early for, you know, someone to be out there saying, oh, it had a huge impact on us. Because um, I haven't heard that from anyone yet. N- not, like I said, nothing that major. I think some places have seen maybe some dips, but. Again, you, you don't know for sure if it's because of the tax law. Well, you know, I wish I had another half hour with you. We've already exceeded the half hour a little bit here, but it's always good to talk to you. And uh, thank you so much for the tour of your facilities. Really enjoyed Absolutely. seeing that. And uh, thank you uh, for joining me once yeah, again. Yeah, thanks for having me. My thanks again to Lindsay Erdotti for joining me on the podcast. I always encourage people to subscribe to your local media outlets. The IBJ is locally owned and produces quality local journalism, so I would recommend you subscribe to the Indianapolis Business Journal if you don't already. It's easy. Just go to IBJ.com. This podcast is brought to you by LarryInFishers.com. If you want news updates all about fishers nearly every day, check out my website, LarryInFishers.com. Also, follow me on Twitter, at LarryInFishers. My name is Larry Lannon. Thanks for listening. We'll talk again.